0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host Miguel Armaza. Our guests today are Ben Savage and Adriana Saman from Clocktower Technology Ventures, a fintech-focused venture capital fund that's also the technology investing affiliate of Clocktower Group, a global macro investment firm. Ben is a fintech entrepreneur turned investor with an MBA from Stanford University and Adriana got her bachelor's from our very own University of Pennsylvania. We discussed their backgrounds and what led them to venture capital, Clocktower's investment strategy and approach, their decision to focus on FinTech and why they are excited about the reinvention of financial services, why they have invested beyond the United States with a particular emphasis on Latin America, navigating COVID in 2020, their outlook for the road ahead of the industry and a whole lot more. And now join me in a very fun and informative conversation with Ben Savage and Adriana Samantha. Ben, Adriana, thank you so much for joining us on the Wharton FinTech Podcast. And for Adriana, I should say, welcome back home. We're always happy to have an alum join us. Maybe we can get started by hearing a bit of uh, your backgrounds and how you got to your current role.
1: Thank you, Miguel. It's so great to be here. Always awesome to go back to Penn roots and everything related. Yeah, so just to kick off my background, I'm originally from Ecuador. I was born and raised there. I came to the US for school. I was a Penn undergrad, political science major, but truly had the pull towards finance from the very beginning, inevitably through Warden. And so I started my career actually in investment banking, covering the Latin America M&A team at J.P. Morgan. I spent two and a half years there, and then I actually shifted internally to a team that focused on fintech payments, digital strategy at Chase. The reason for this, I was always very passionate about financial inclusion and how we can make financial services more accessible to people, especially in Latin America. But I figured a good way to get an idea of what that felt like or understanding the space was to get some product or tech experience in the U.S. So that was the opportunity I had, I took it. I spent a year working with product managers and engineers and reporting to the head of payments. So basically all the features of the Chase app that you see today, thinking about how to make them better, how to, which features to add, and especially how to keep up as incumbents with startups. So when closely tracking startups, I started to get a lot more excited about that side of the world. What are these challengers doing? Why are they keeping us awake at night? And I sort of wanted to go to the other side and empower these entrepreneurs that are also definitely helping financial inclusion in many ways, but just truly rethinking fintech and how we access financial services. And so I met Clocktower team maybe already two years ago, and it felt like an immediate match from a mission and specialization perspective. They flew me to Santa Monica as a final step for my interview and very quickly convinced me to move across the country to join the team and be part of the investment team. So I've been there. We're a small team. I'll let Ben may tell us more about Clocktower and his background as well.
2: Thanks, Adriana. Yeah, so I have been an investor my whole career, starting in venture capital in sort of the dot-com cycle when I graduated college. And then after business school, took a different path and joined a big hedge fund called Bridgewater, where I worked on systematic investment strategies and macro. After Bridgewater, I decided to be an entrepreneur for a bit and started a fintech company in 2010. When I went through that process of raising capital, it was very clear that there was a bit of a gap in the market for early stage capital available for financial innovation. And that stuck with me. So that later when I joined Clocktower Group, which is the parent holding organization for Clocktower Ventures, I had continued to feel that there was an opportunity to help innovators in financial services get access to early stage capital that can actually make a difference. And so five years ago, we started Clocktower Ventures with that idea in mind, that we could leverage a set of uniquely accretive relationships that we believe we can bring to bear at Clocktower Group, which is a diversified holding company of asset management platforms, together to help entrepreneurs on their journeys. And so that sort of brought me back to the venture world, you know, 10 years after I left it in 2015, having been an investor with the exception of this in tech entrepreneurial journey for a couple of years. And we've just been very fortunate at our Ventures to be a small part of the stories of a bunch of fantastic founders. And all we do is focus on financial innovation, as Andreana noted. And we're kind of a team of, Financial geeks. We we love talking about financial services and thinking about financial services innovation. And that's how we came together.
0: Yeah, this is definitely the right podcast for you. <laughs> <laughs> so Ben, I'm I'm curious about your venture experience pre-entrepreneurship and post-entrepreneurship. What what are the biggest differences that you've applied to your investing approach?
2: You know, it's funny. I'm not sure that anything material has changed. I think it's just recognizing that where you might have calibrated a knob to three or four, maybe you should have calibrated it to eight or nine. And so I think I've always had as a philosophical conviction companies are just people at the end of the day. And the human capital that drives businesses is of existential importance you know, there's kind of this classic debate in venture capital, do you bet the jockey or do you bet the horse? And I think for us in particular, as very early stage investors, when we're looking at seed opportunities and series A opportunities, we have always philosophically, I've always philosophically been more interested in the human capital than in sort of what is this market and what is the TAM and questions like that. But prior to actually being an entrepreneur, I might have not fully appreciated how important it is, or maybe perhaps how simple it is in some ways to be an early stage venture investor, which is that I think we at ClockTower have a lot of conviction today that if the only thing you did was pick talent and make bets on world class human capital, and you literally never asked a question about what is the size of that market that you're addressing or something like that, that's actually an effective venture capital strategy. And pushing that idea to a much more extreme kind of place than might initially be apparent got much easier for me after being an entrepreneur, after being a founder. So I think there's a number of examples like that, where something you knew to be true, but you weren't sure how to calibrate it, perhaps, how to weigh it relative to other beliefs, it became easier to, I think push those beliefs further having been a founder and just recognizing how hard the entrepreneurial journey is. Venture capitalists talk a lot in the industry about the importance of empathy in understanding what founders go through. You know, One of my good friends who's exited a couple of companies said, there's nothing that prepares you for actually being a founder other than being a founder. You can study it, you can think about it, you can talk to folks who've done it, but until you go through it yourself, you don't truly understand what it's like. I think it's similar to like having a child, actually, or you know, losing a loved one. These are experiences that many of us go through in life. And you think you understand cognitively what those things are like. And there's lots of literature and people who've been through it. But it's not you just do it. You can't possibly know what it's truly like. And once you have that knowledge,
0: it does allow you to expand your thinking in ways that maybe previously you couldn't.
1: Fascinating.
0: And so going back a, a little bit to your focus. As a fund. So you're clearly laser focused on financial services, but uh, it's also a, a large landscape. Do you have any preferences within financial services?
2: We think about financial innovation very broadly. And we define Clock Tower Venture scope as something like 20% of GDP, um, which is a huge window to look through. And I think there are certain fintech investors and people who invest in FinTech funds that think of it as kind of a niche sort of strategy. And there are people who do run it as kind of a niche. We actually intentionally don't constrain ourselves. So we look at payments, insurance, capital markets, personal finance, banking, credit, lending, real estate to the extent of financial asset rather than physical asset. And something that we call the enterprise financial stack, which is basically anything that a CFO would purchase as a simplification. And you add all that up, and it's something like 20% of GDP. So we don't think of financial services as a sort of sector fund or anything like that. It's an enormous part of the economy, an enormous part of human reality. And that's very deliberate for us because we are building a very broad portfolio, and we think that's an important thing to do. And we find it fun. There's a lot of heterogeneity to think about when you're looking through that wide of a window. But at the same time, it's small enough that we're not having to constantly context switch between logistics and healthcare and consumer apparel and cloud infrastructure. And for our investment committee discussions, and I think for all of us as a team, it allows us to stay somewhat focused.
0: That makes sense. And we're obviously going through... um pandemic. It's still part of everyone's lives. Curious, as a fund, how have you navigated this past year? I mean, fintech, of course, in many respects has come out on the positive side, but it's still a very challenging event. And I imagine you've had to manage relationships, not just with your portfolio companies, but with your LPs, right? How has the last year been for you?
1: Yeah, so I'll take it on the portfolio. And it's funny, it's been a crazy year, but I think it's been largely a positive experience for us from many perspectives. First, I remember back in March when we started this whole work from home and just trying to understand what the world would look like, how long this would last, what would happen. The first few months were a lot of, I would say damage control, but lots of support devoted to our existing founders, making sure we were being as helpful as we could that they knew were there, introducing them to the right folks that would help them in anything that came up. But then we still have our work as investors. And so then this whole question came around on how comfortable we would feel around investing virtually and given that we're so people-centric, how that would affect our impression of founders at the seed stage, especially where it's even more so. And I'm not going to lie, it was a bit tough at the beginning to wrap your head around it, but once we did it a few times, we got the hang of it, and it's been probably the most—not probably—it's actually been the most active period of us as a fund in terms of investing. And I think this also shed light on how we're structured as a fund and the importance of relationships that we've been working on for the past five years in CTV was was started. I think when you're locked up at home. There's way less serendipity around who you run into, just building relationships face-to-face. And we had to rely on on our existing network and the trust that we've built with other investors and our existing portfolio companies to find deals and build conviction around new opportunities. And, and I think it enforced our faith in, in our model and the talent we're finding, and especially how close sites we've built with other funds that we usually collaborate with it, usually lead rounds, and so we always participate with them as, as we never lead. And yeah, it's been a good surprise to be able to see that otherwise we would have never been realized and how powerful network has become and how creative and how much we've improved our pattern recognition given how tied in we are to the fintech scene at the founder level and at the investor level. Additionally, I think generally, it's given that fintech is just a resilient vertical, it's been largely fine for our portfolios. And so it's just proven that certain models are even more necessary than before. And I think that's great.
2: Yeah, I think there's probably two buckets of things I'd say to what's happened under pandemic for us. In terms of operating our platform, I think the main message has just been communicating with all of the stakeholders in our platform, whether that's our portfolio founders, our co-investors, ourselves as a team and internal to Clocktower, and then our limited partners. And so under normal conditions, this is something we spend a lot of time doing anyway. We actually publish a great deal of content across our firm to all of our stakeholders in our ecosystem. We actually dialed that up pretty early under pandemic to start telling people, here's what we think is going on. In writing, in a way that's easily disseminated. And that led to a whole bunch of great conversations across our ecosystem that kind of made it feel like you were connected, especially in those early sort of dark days of this thing when no one knew what was going on. We were spending all of our time just communicating with everyone across our platform. And I think that helped both build good ties, but also proved a way for us to both share and gather insight very, very efficiently. And our limited partners, in particular, I think really. Well, nothing changes about what your job is as a manager through this kind of thing. It's just the way you're doing it might evolve. And I think they appreciated the transparency that we provided and the clarity that we provided about just what we were thinking through in real time, including the questions Adriana highlights of, well, how are we going to make investments that are very human capital and relationship centric in a context where you can't sit down and break bread with folks? And we figured out how to do that and shared how we did it. And that was great. The second thing, which Adriana picked up sort of at the end there, is that from a fundamental perspective, you know, fintech has largely been a net beneficiary of the economic changes caused by the pandemic, as I'm sure other guests have, have articulated. You know, Essentially, every American got stuck at home in April and discovered, in many cases for the first time, just how much they could do from a financial services perspective, on their phones and tablets and computers and laptops. And it significantly changed the adoption curve for fintech. Um, not just on the consumer side, it's a little more conspicuous there, um, but on the enterprise side as well. And so much of what we've spent the time doing as investors through this is without really changing any of our core principles, just trying to play forward, okay, in a in a context where the whole world suddenly woke up to the potential of digital financial services, what does that mean for the future? are there themes or areas of interest that are going to become more relevant some are going to become less relevant and how should we approach that and it's led us you know down a bunch of really exciting paths
0: yeah and I guess that's a good segue for my next question and that was kind of digging a little bit deeper into your thesis, which is you're looking for companies that are reinventing financial services. And given that this is you know, such a large percentage of the GDP, as you well mentioned, Ben, 20%. What are some of those examples of companies that you've seen that are truly revolutionary, right? And and I guess they could be from your portfolio, but not necessarily. Just in general, wanted to understand what you consider as truly someone, a company that's reinventing financial services?
2: Reinventing is a tricky word in some ways, right? Financial services have essentially been around in the same form. Um, The basic functions of financial services, taking risks, transferring risks, pricing risks, facilitating transactions. This is integral to sort of humanity and civilization. And in some sense, there's really nothing new under the sun today than existed, you know, thousands of years ago in sort of Babylon. But the way in which things get done is actually what changes. And so it's not so much that we're going to invent a new financial service that no one has ever seen before, because I'm not sure that that's possible. I think everything has been done in some way. But how you do things is where the reinvention kicks in. And we sometimes say that most of what we invest in, it's not like we're taking scientific risk in the way that VCs in other categories might be. It's pretty rare that we come across an investment where there's some probability that it just won't work, right? You're usually taking technology or ideas and kind of applying them to financial services, things that have been already built out in other verticals. It's very unusual that you find something where This is the first time it's ever been tried in the history of the world, and we might not actually land a man on the moon. The one exception to that, which perhaps is getting at what you're looking for, Miguel, is when we talk about things that involve the pricing of risk. And I think Paceline that Adriana mentions is a great example of this. In some sense, the long arc of financial innovation is about more efficiently pricing risks and, in some sense, fractionalizing risks to smaller and smaller units. That can be accurately priced. But if you take a credit risk or an insurance risk or even a bid ask spread and you say, let me apply more data to that, or let me apply a different algorithm to that, a different analytical lens for figuring out what that risk should more accurately be priced at, you do to some degree end up taking what I would characterize as scientific risk. And we have a number of companies where this is what's really happening under the surface, that it's not just a UX improvement or a new sort of modality for engaging in financial services, but there's something about the pricing of risk that is shifting and is somewhat novel. And PaceLine is, in, in the sense, doing that by blending different data sets with the kinds of things that are traditionally used for financial services, you enhance your ability to more accurately value something. And that tends to be, I think, at the extreme of what we mean by reinventing financial services. But we have plenty of companies that we would say are reinventing financial services, even though from another sort of descriptive stance, all they're doing is taking stuff that people do every day today and just making it so much better than it already feels. That, I think it feels like a reinvention. But it's not like we're winning a Nobel Prize for discovering a new chemical compound or something. It's a different kind of thing.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. And oftentimes it sounds like this could be innovations that are not so much client-facing, but the result is what's benefiting the client, what's maybe making the product cheaper, making the experience a few dimensions better from where it was before.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, at the end of the day, buying and selling stocks, for instance, is a commodity, right? If I buy a share of Microsoft stock, it doesn't matter whether I do it in an E-Trade account, in a Robinhood account, in an M1 account, which is one of our investments, in a Morgan Stanley account. It doesn't matter whether I do it on my phone, on my computer, if I ask a friend to do it, if a mutual fund does it for me, it is actually a commodity at the bottom of that, which is you're just executing a trade. and yet. I think for millions of people, Robinhood feels like something really new and different because of the metaphor that they're using, the ease at which they're doing it, and the fee compression that occurs, I mean it's free. I think it's actually different than the way things worked a decade ago, even though ultimately the true service being provided, the financial service at the bottom of that, is functionally a commodity, which is buying and selling you know, listed equity.
0: Happy to say that Brian Barnes was on the podcast, founder of M1. And what about some of the areas that have, I wouldn't say maybe that disappointed you, but where you think that there could still be a lot more innovation? Are are there any pockets within FinTech where you'd like to focus on, but you're not seeing a lot of traction just yet?
2: In one sense, the answer is everything. When you look at the size of market capitalization for incumbents in financial services, and then you look at the sort of aggregate value of venture-backed private financial services businesses, and even the handful, you know, like Square that have gotten themselves public. I think there's still just so much more innovation to come. And so from a certain perspective, you could say it's all disappointing because we still have good, but not necessarily great financial services for most people. And there's still just a shocking amount of friction in the economy that we think eventually technology will largely get rid of. But I just think we're early days. I'll maybe give two or three specific examples. One area where I think we haven't seen as much innovation as we'd like to is around leveraging automation to reduce fees. And so one hypothesis that we sometimes talk about is At some point in the future, it could be five years, it could be 10 years, I would be disappointed, but it could be 20 years. No one will ever really pay a late fee again. Because there's actually no reason whatsoever, if software is capable of automating bill payments, that you would ever pay a late fee. Because you either have the money and can just pay the bill when it's due to avoid a late fee, or you don't have the money. And it's actually essentially always going to be cheaper to borrow and to pay a bill rather than pay the late fees because the effective sort of APR on late fees is literally usurious. And yet late fees are like an enormous tax on the economy. And it's unfortunately a very regressive tax that tends to affect lower income people more than others. And so while you see businesses that launch new forms of credit that don't have late fees embedded in it, and that's one way to get rid of late fees, a slightly better way I think is just automation. If every American signed up for some kind of AI package that you just upload all your bills, and it will make sure that you never pay a late fee by borrowing for you, if need be to pay a bill, um, except for the folks who are genuinely insolvent and literally can't afford to pay their bills, which is kind of a different problem. This will remove a tremendous amount of friction from the system. And so we haven't seen in fintech yet as much in our view that moves in these dimensions. I think that's going to happen faster now because there's so much infrastructure being developed around fintech that will start to unlock these sorts of use cases. But we haven't seen as much there as I would have liked. I think the second area is actually in capital market, where notwithstanding Robinhood and M1 and Betterment and Wealthfront, which are all great companies that have delivered a lot of value to consumers, the basics of money management are still really unchanged and in particular when we look at wealth management as a category um, betterment and, and wealthfront kind of began a journey in people's minds about huh maybe I can do something for wealth that looks a little new that doesn't rely on legacy cost structures and legacy ways of doing business but the innovation hasn't pushed forward as far as we would have liked it to in that space and for lots of people this is a pretty real challenge like Once you start to accumulate some wealth, what to do with it is confusing. It's scary. There's actually way too many choices for people. It's hard to figure out what to do. And it's a very consequential set of decisions because if you kind of start doing the wrong things, especially early in your life, in your 30s and 40s, let alone in your 20s, you start compounding at effectively lower rates than other people with profound consequences for the end of your life. And so we would love to see more occurring around capital markets and wealth management in particular in capital markets, both things that unlock access for people to better choice sets, but also ways of curating the choices that they have that are more useful for consumers than we've seen. Um, And then I'd say maybe one third category where we haven't seen as much innovation, although again, here I think it is coming, is actually around real estate where it seems like there's a lot. If you naively look at real estate, it sure feels like there's a lot of innovation happening in the sense that you have i-buyers that are providing liquidity to people. You have different forms of fractional ownership. You have different sort of leaseback schemes and so forth. But actually, most of the process of dealing with buying and selling real estate, especially single-family homes, but across the whole complex, it's still anchored in an old way of doing things. And most of the innovation we've seen so far is just trying to put sort of gloss and better user experiences on the old ways of doing things. We haven't yet seen what I think will end up being the really fundamental sets of innovation around real estate. And one example that I like to cite on this is, you know, Airbnb has in many ways changed the real estate industry. Because it allows for us to suddenly see real estate assets in a very different way than we had previously. And so, you know, it really should be the case that for young people thinking about buying their first home or something like that, they ought to be able to buy a slightly bigger house with maybe an extra bedroom than they could otherwise afford and make that work because they know with a high degree of certainty. That that extra bedroom could be rented out over time on Airbnb and provide income that could be used to offset the purchase price of that home. And yet, what I've just described, as simple as it sounds, it's actually extraordinarily difficult today to execute on something like that in the real estate market. There are going to be mortgage lenders that, with some pain, you could go to them and like show how that third bedroom is going to provide income to help you cover the cost of your mortgage on that property. But it's Like, really, not an easy thing to execute on. And the capital markets development behind that is actually quite poor. Like, that loan, if it got done, would not look the same as other loans in a sort of mortgage securitization. And that creates like an incremental challenge to get the yield right on it, and so on, and so on, and so on. And so, the deeper innovation in real estate finance, we think, is coming. There are seeds of it today, but the progress has been very slow. Uh, relative to what I think it might appear on the surface. And so these are all categories where we think over time, more might get done.
0: Specifically for your third and last example, it sounds like either innovation could come from a newcomer that would just start to offer these new products, but it also seems like given all the upfront costs and the fact that you have to almost create a new segment of the market or a new product, that could also be an opportunity for a large player to come in and innovate a new product, a new type of loan?
2: Yeah, I think there's always a tension when we're talking about the startup ecosystem. Well, why can't the incumbents do this sort of thing? And definitionally, with businesses that have balance sheet requirements, where cost of capital is important to the long-term economics, um, incumbents are effectively always going to have a lower cost of capital. Um, I think the advantages that startups have in markets where incumbents are prevalent or scaled up is that they can move faster and they should have lower operating costs, even if on day zero, they don't have lower balance sheet costs. And one of the things that's been a hallmark of certainly the past couple years is that there's more than enough capital in private markets to provide balance sheet at, if not Optimal cost structures, certainly competitive cost structures relative to incumbents, so that the balance sheet advantage is lessened. And some of that's just a function of spread compression. I mean, in a, in a zero interest rate world, you know, it doesn't matter as much in absolute terms if the incumbent has a balance sheet advantage because it's just not going to be that big of an advantage. It's going to be like a 50 bits advantage or something like that hundred bips advantage, which is very different than if you're living in a world where rates are much higher, where the the absolute size of the advantage would be bigger in dollar terms. But the other thing about real estate as an example is that there are actually markets where there aren't incumbents that you have to worry about. And so we have an investment in Latin America in a real estate business that maybe Adriana wants to talk about, which is a good example where there just aren't incumbents in the market. And so there's white space to go build something transformational where you don't even have to worry about. these kinds of
1: problems. Yeah. So jumping in there on Javi, Javi is basically an iBuyer combination with Zillow in Colombia. So there's lots of things about this business down there that just make it more disruptive and even lucrative than the versions here in the US. And alluding to what Ben said around the lack of incumbents, there's also lack of infrastructure in the real estate market in Colombia that makes price discovery a lot more difficult than it is here in the U.S. So there is no MLS. And so whoever builds the database that allows to understand historical prices and, you know, how they're affected at different times in the market can truly benefit from from that arbitrage and the existing lack of liquidity. And so what Javi is doing is they are buying houses at slightly lower prices on the market, refurbishing them with relatively small budgets and leveraging that model to make a like a flipping and just like a much bigger profit on the sale of the house. And that's superficially the business, but the true core of what we believe can make this business really big and just very exciting is all through COVID, they've spent lots and lots of time Building software that captures information on the windows of the houses that are posting that they're being sold because most houses that are sold are not posted on any online service. And so they're truly doing the ground, ground sub, nitty gritty data gathering and understanding of hyper local segments of Bogota and coming up with their proprietary pricing models that's allowing them to. They've already become, I think, the largest home buyer in Bogota. And so, seeing this model in, well, there's also a success case in Brazil, which is Loft, right? So, we're seeing these sort of models pop up all around the region. And it's sort of a segue into Latin. It's like the copycat version, but just enhanced because of the lack of infrastructure. So, it's a more of like all in one situation where you can truly become a big player. I don't think necessarily more capital efficient way, but in a much more defensible way.
0: Now, Javi is not your only international investment. You've made a few more investments, particularly in Latin America. How are you thinking about the state of the industry in the region? And I'm guessing you expect to continue investing internationally?
1: Definitely. We're all about that. Um, I think, so just starting with um, with the region, I think right now there's just this trifecta combination of financial services for true disruption, and I'll elaborate more there, and then just a surge of venture capital in the past two or three years that we continue, will the trend will continue to rise, and then just population that's prime to access financial services. So on, on the first bucket, I think there's two notable items to keep in mind, which is bank concentration is so high. So most, I would say like five banks in LATAM whole, in each country hold roughly 80 or more percent of all the bank accounts held. And there's also a very high degree of unbanked population. So it's averaged out at around 40%, which is pretty crazy. It tells you that there's just a lot, a lot to do. But that means there's a market that's big enough, but you need money and you need the technology. And so I think this is the first time in history where we're seeing true interest not just locally, but from an international level to invest in the region. Thing think that's notable with the increase in capital flows for venture capital in the past, let's say four years, like 2016 was only 500 million. Whereas 2018, it was roughly 3 billion, 2 billion. Last year it was almost 5 billion. And this year is tracking towards that number as well. So the growth is gigantic. And while it's still very concentrated In a few, I think almost top 25 companies carry roughly 90% of the capital. Most of those companies are actually financial services companies. And I think that just shows that this is just top priority for the region to disrupt. And there's just real demand amongst the population, right? So on the third bucket, which is around the population, is Latin America is one of the regions with the highest smartphone penetration and internet access. And people are just generally tech savvy and have a globalized view of like aspirations that like, feel a little more like the US, maybe less like Asia. And I think that just sets the stage for explosive growth. We started looking at Latin America. I mean, informally when I joined Club Tower, because of my background, I've been just generally naturally inclined to meet Latin founders and just help them. And I've always been very passionate about financial inclusion in Latin. So it was just like perfect thing for me to to spend time on as a passion project, but in the past year, we've just been enamored with a lot of opportunities that we've seen that truly have the potential to become not just unicorns, but reference companies and hardcore infrastructure for lots of ways of financial services to come. I'd say another one of our investments, and I need to proudly say it's also from Ecuador, is the founders of Kushki, which is basically in a few words, sort of an alien for Latin America, setting up the entire payment gateway infrastructure uniformly across the region. And so we just see so many plays there that are still, there's just no precedent to and still not that much competition around, but there is more capital to support it and especially to support it as it enters the growth stage. There's a few IPOs that have proven successful. There's a bunch of MA exits, I think that's still early, but It's early because we didn't have the amount of capital and the perfect storm that we're seeing today. And I think the growth in the next five or 10 years is just extremely exciting and super interesting for us.
0: Yeah, no, I could not agree more. And obviously, (laughs) a little bit biased as well. (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah, I mean, five billion sounds like a lot. But when you think of a region with over 600 million people and Half of that being two countries, then it's not much. So there's definitely room for growth.
1: <laughs> well, true. Yeah, and most of it has gone to Brazil, by the way. And so adding to that, we see Brazil has captured so much of it and has developed a way more sophisticated local VC landscape where companies can actually grow faster. And it's also the sheer size of the country, right? But if you look at it, ex-Brazil, it's just white space. There's so much opportunity. It's still nascent. Founders are still getting familiarized with how venture works, but I also think it's an interesting thing because you can just see that founders are a lot more resourceful around what they care about in terms of metrics before pitching for extra capital and are just, I don't know, it's it's there's a lot more effort because there's less access. And so if you make it there, You've done a lot with very little, and that by itself shows a lot about your resilience and maybe the fact that you're already to achieve for market fit, and it just makes it so much more exciting moving forward. But yeah, in absolute terms, it's definitely a very small amount of capital. It's actually, like, in terms of percentage of GDP, even far smaller than like China or India, even the EU. So, and if you think about tech being a secular trend and just being poised to continue growing, I think this just shows that it's underway but should be just poised to continue to attract more money.
0: Well, Ben, Adriana, this has uh, truly been interesting, and I'm sure the audience will love just as I have enjoyed it. Before we go, though, we would like to (laughs) kind of ask you a little bit more about your personal side, and maybe you could share some of those hobbies that you enjoy uh, outside of work. I
2: can go first. I'm pretty boring. (laughs) <laughs> spend time with my kids and I cook a lot and spend most of the rest of the time trying to hustle in fintech but um is a lot more interesting to
0: me if you cook covid has been your time to shine during covid right yeah
2: for sure i mean i have i would we haven't missed getting an after <laughs> it with, with restaurants but you know it's also not fun it's one thing when you're cooking and entertaining you know for a group of people that's exciting cooking under these circumstances it's not great. I mean there's really nothing that's good about what's happened over the past 9 months or so for the world but you know we're all doing the best we can.
1: Yeah so on my end I guess I don't have any truly unique hobbies but I am an avid reader and covid has been amazing for that. I think I've crushed more books this year than probably the past 3 years combined and hated to cook but became a fairly decent cook during covid given time availability and lack of restaurant access, which I take pride on. And I just love being outdoors and hiking. I really love to hike. I've been hiking all around the country in this quarantine, including Alaska. So it's been pretty fun.
0: Wow. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, Adriana. Any book recommendations?
1: So actually, yeah, you're putting me on the spot. But (laughs) one of my favorite books that I've read so far regarding tech, it's called How the Internet Happened. I forgot the name of the author, but I just when I started venture, I started to read a lot on on the history of venture capital and just how tech happened, literally to to really inform how we're thinking about our founders and business models and what has set the stage for venture to be the way it is today. And I think that book does a really good job encapsulating the key milestones of the internet world that we live in today. And it truly really just makes you think about what led to those developments and what are things we're going through today that that could be very interesting in in shaping what the world will look like moving forward.
0: Outstanding. Outstanding. Well, Adriana, Ben, thanks again. Truly, truly a pleasure having you here. Adriana, you're always invited and welcome to come back to campus, to Penn. And Ben, we also would love to see you. Uh, you probably won't be me because uh, we're so remote, but future generations will be happy and delighted to see you guys around campus.
1: Thank you so much.
2: Yeah, thanks, Miguel. It's been our pleasure. We really enjoyed it. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Warton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on linkedin twitter and the rest of social media at wharton fintech you will find interviews articles videos and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry we also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor rafael ostria signing off i'm your host miguel Armasa.